It is good to be back with you. It's good to be here in the pulpit, to see your faces, to have a chance to share with you. Uh, For the past two months or so, Carolyn and I, as we've been traveling, uh, I've been thinking and praying a great deal about what I should be preaching when I return, because I take this very seriously. So this week I want to begin a new sermon series, which I've entitled Aliens, Strangers, and Reformers. I know that seems like a strange title, uh, but hopefully it'll make more sense to you as we proceed through the series over the next several weeks. I want to start the series by observing some things about God's relationship with his people. First, the Hebrew people, and then we as Christians who are adopted into the family of God's chosen people. Or, as the Apostle Paul chose to put it, we who as Christians are grafted onto the vine of the chosen people of God. Since the time that God first called Abram, who later would be called Abraham, and through him created the Hebrew people, there has been a recurring problem. The Old Testament can fairly be described as the telling of a recurring cycle of events in which God first created and then he called the Hebrew people to himself and blessed them as his select group. And then they betrayed him. They betrayed God's love and trust. But despite that betrayal, God loved them and was merciful to them. And after a necessary chastisement, God welcomed his people back, only to have them again betray him, to be punished and to be welcomed back, only to be again betrayed, to have to give punishment, and then to call the Hebrew people back and to be reconciled with them, and on and on, over and over again. Anyone who says that the Old Testament God is a God of judgment and of law and of retribution, whereas the New Testament God is a God of mercy and grace and light, has never really bothered to read or study the Old Testament. It is the story of how God over and over again showed mercy and grace and love to his people, even as they continued to betray him over and over again. You see, God had told the Israelites they were not to be like any other people. They were to be different, as though they were aliens and strangers in the world. They were to be set apart for him. In effect, they were to worship differently. They were to live differently than any other people on the earth. But the temptation to be like the others who are around you, to worship local gods and follow other moralities, especially ones that feel good, was simply too great for the Israelites. So over and over, these Israelites betrayed God, and they did it especially in two ways. First, by following after and worshiping other gods, or putting other things ahead of God as their focus, and not obeying God's will for them. And then secondly, by having greedy materialism control them so that they sought gain by taking advantage of others, especially the poor the widows, and the orphans. These are the two great things that God judges the Israelites for. Worshiping other gods and putting other things before him, and then taking advantage of those who are weaker, the widows, the orphans, the strangers in their midst. But even as this cycle recurred, whenever it seemed that nearly all the Israelites had strayed away from God, God still always ensured that there was at least a small group, a remnant of faithful people who would remain true, and from whom God could again rebuild his chosen people. In fact, this happened so frequently throughout the Old Testament that there is a whole remnant theology 
that sees this as a key way of understanding God's relationship with His people. A number of prophets refer to this remnant, such as these verses from the prophet Ezra. If you'd put those up. If you'd put up the verse. The prophet Ezra said this, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in His sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. What has happened to us as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve, and you have given us a remnant like this. God always made sure, despite the sinfulness of the majority of the people, that a remnant of righteous and holy followers of his would exist. And this theme of the remnant of people who remain faithful to God when the majority have turned away continues far beyond even the Old Testament. Throughout the history of the Christian church, starting immediately after the ascension of Jesus, there have been groups who claimed to be Christian, but who followed doctrines and lifestyles that were not consistent with God's will or Christ's teaching. Often this has involved the majority of Christians in a region or a city. Many of the letters of the Apostle Paul, for instance, are written to address just such heresies among Christian communities. In Corinth, in Galatia, in Philippi, Thessalonica, and elsewhere. Whether the issue was bad theology, the Galatian church, for instance, was following legalists, Jewish legalists, who said you had to become a Jew to become a Christian, the Thessalonians, or the, in Thessalonia, they were convinced that Jesus had already returned and they missed it. Examples of following bad theology. Or bad conduct. The Corinthians were simply being immoral, doing immoral things. And the Philippians, for all of their positives, were having trouble getting along with each other. And Paul gave them, in each case, the corrective that they needed. Because always, whatever errors or bad conduct various Christians have fallen into, God has always raised up other faithful Christians, the remnant, to keep the true Christian message alive. This has always been true. When the Catholic Church fell into grievous error in the 16th century, God called forth the Reformers, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, and others, to call the Church back to a true faith. Even in America during the 18th and the first half of the 19th centuries, when many, even most Christians, were misusing the Bible to defend the horrendous institution of slavery, God inspired the two great awakenings, which not only had great evangelistic fervor and a great many people turning back to God, but it also became the seedbed from which the abolitionist movement grew, which eventually helped lead to the end of slavery in America. My point is that we as Christians, as a group, as with the Hebrew people before us, have often made wrong turns in our beliefs and actions. And we have needed a remnant, a minority of faithful Christians, to point out our errors and to bring us back to a true following of Jesus. And I believe that the Christian church in the West, and especially the church in America, has again come to one of those times when we have largely gone astray from the true faith of Jesus and when we need to be called back. 
We need a faithful remnant to help lead us. And I believe the question that we here must ask of ourselves and of our church, are we going to be part of the misguided and therefore heretical Christians who only pretend to be followers of Jesus, or are we going to be part of the faithful remnant that calls people back to true faith? The motivation for me asking this question really did come from this trip, although it's something I've been thinking on and praying about for a very long time, um, 10 or 12 years. While we were in China, Korea, and Japan, we visited a great many religious sites, especially in Japan. We visited Shinto shrines and Buddhist temples, which we had uh, been to before, but in much more frequency, we watched people as they worshiped the spirits, or kami as they're called, of nature and of ancestors. And I was struck by how much more than ever before even, I was convinced that despite my study and my respect for other religions, there is a truth and a rightness about worshiping Jesus Christ's own son that goes far deeper and further than any other faith could ever go, and that it is true in a way that no other religion could ever be true. Our faith in Jesus Christ as the saving son of God is the fundamental truth of human need. And then when we get back aboard our ship, Carolyn and I, almost every dinner time, and then often at other times, we would have conversations with other guests. Quite often they would ask me questions related to the fact that I am always very clear in introducing myself as an evangelical Christian, and in fact an evangelical Christian minister. Um, these are secular cruises. I lecture on matters of culture and history and world religions. They are not Christian testimonies that I give, but I'm always very clear where I'm coming from. And so that leads to a lot of conversations and questions. This time, more than ever before, it seemed like I was struck by, when I told people I was an evangelical, they assumed that meant that I was part of a particular political party. Or more disconcerting to me, that I would be in agreement with many of the standards and values that have recently become part of the political rhetoric in the American culture. This is what evangelical has come to mean to many people. So much so that many evangelicals have decided to stop using that word in reference to themselves. Now please be assured, this sermon and the others that are going to follow in the series are not intended to be political, although I'm pretty sure some of you are going to hear it that way. But those of you who have been around for a while know that I have always, since my first time in the church here, insisted that we cannot allow ourselves as a church to be pulled down into political arguments. And I still insist on this. I believe quite simply that when Jesus said to us, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's, this means that we are not to confuse or mix our politics with our religious faith. We come here to church to worship God and to seek to serve him, not to argue about politics. I have always believed that. But it is also true that political trends and discourse have a significant effect on our culture. It affects how we think and how we act. And for us Christians who, like the Hebrew people before us, are called to not be like the rest of the world, to be strangers and aliens, to worship a God in the way the rest of the world cannot even understand, we have to be able to talk about it when we see ourselves being affected by the culture. We need to be concerned that how we act 
is affected by the political arguments and discourse in our culture. So while I do not wish to address political issues, I will mention no political uh, candidates or parties. We do need to talk about the effect that much that's going on in the world is having uh, on us today. In other words, Jesus very clearly told us that as his followers, we were to act in particular ways that are different from the way others in the world act. So if there are cultural or even political forces that are tempting us to be disobedient to Jesus in these matters, we have an obligation, I have an obligation as your pastor, to help you identify and deal with those things. The most obvious example in our Western culture is that we are constantly being pressed toward materialism. The belief that worth and human achievement are based on financial and social success. Whether we like to admit it or not, many of us reflect the belief that the wealthy and celebrities are somehow more valuable than those who are poor or who lack fame. Despite the fact that this is precisely opposite what Jesus taught. We as a culture are obsessed with the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Whether you ever saw that TV show or not, it's every day in the media, on television, every time you turn around. Our culture is obsessed to an almost prurient level with the intimate details of the lives of wealthy celebrities. Who was seen with whom? Who kissed whom and where? Who is having an affair? Who left who? For whom? And on and on. These are unhealthy obsessions driven by our fascination with wealth. Interestingly, there has never been a program entitled Lifestyles of the Poor and Humble. Although I am quite certain that such a program would teach us far more that would be consistent with the words of Jesus. But there are other issues besides materialism that we need to see as influencing us in a way that pulls us away from Jesus. There is the demon of selfish nationalism and tribalism. The idea that we, me and mine, are somehow inherently more valuable than others who are not like us, especially those who are not from our tribe or from our country. This leads, among other things, to cause us to protect our privilege and our wealth, even when it means that others are left hungry and destitute. There is the heresy of worshiping strength and winning above all else, and the disparagement of supposed losers, even if being a loser is defined as nothing more than being born in a less affluent country. Jesus was very clear what his focus was in many places. In the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted. But today in our culture, our litany of blessing is much more likely to be blessed are the proud, the ruthless, and the shameless. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after wealth and fame. Blessed are those who are most like us, the white, the wealthy, the privileged, and the proud. And when compared to the message of Jesus, these attitudes are not just a difference of opinion. They are a horrible corruption of Jesus' intent. They are a damnable blasphemy. 
So what are we going to do about it? Scripture gives us direction, especially as this plague of heresy is nothing new. It has existed since the call of Abraham. The prophet Amos, in the fifth chapter of his book, says this, again making reference to the remnant. If you would put up the next slide. Amos writes, For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore the prudent will keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Amos here recognized the existence of oppression and the lack of justice for the poor, for those who are different than those in power. He also notes that in such evil times, the prudent, that is those who are savvy and clever, will keep their heads down and keep quiet. But then Moses tells us instead that we are to do the hard thing, the godly thing, the thing that only the true remnant of God can accomplish. Only then God will really be with us as we always claim that he is. Amos tells us to hate evil, to hate injustice. He tells us instead to seek good and to love that good. Even if, as Amos admits, evil and injustice are easier, and I might add, often more profitable, which is why we have never seen a wealthy saint of the Lord. And so we frequently do not love the good. Loving the good is hard and it's costly. Most people don't really want to be good because goodness means being care, caring and merciful to others, especially others who are weaker. It means being willing to put ourselves out for the sake of other people. Being good can be hard work. No, we do not want to be good. We want to be great. Even though our greatness will almost always come at a harsh cost for somebody else. Greatness, quite simply, seems to pay better. At least, at least to pay us better, even if it costs other people everything. And so we are inclined to follow leaders whom we believe will make us great rather than leaders who will help make us good. Over the next several weeks, I'll be speaking to different aspects of this topic, including power, race and gender, selfish nationalism, and economic inequality all with an eye to us understanding better what Jesus said, what he taught us, and how we can and must confront the issues that are pressed on us in ways that are honoring to Jesus. And now to prepare you for where I'm hoping we're heading in the next few weeks, I want to give you one last verse of scripture to consider and meditate on this week as we continue to ask how Jesus wants us to respond to these cultural challenges. In effect, it's an answer to one of the questions of what would Jesus do? from the second chapter of the book of Philippians, verses 5 through 8. We read from Paul, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus would do. This is the example Jesus gave us. And I believe it's what he calls us to do now. Amen.